Veterinary filled in the silence. Your grandmother used to do people's thinking for them. That trait runs in families, always on the female side. Capable women scurrying about in a world where everyone else seems to be seven years old and keeps on falling over in the playground, picking them up and watching them run right out there again. I imagine you run the night kitchen. Too many people in the big one. You want spaces you can control beyond the immediate reach of fools. If he'd added, am I right, like some windbag seeking applause, she would have hated him. But he was reading her from the inside of her head in a calm, matter-of-fact way. She had to suppress a shiver because it was all true. I'm taking nothing from anybody, Miss Sugarbean. I'm simply changing the playground, the man went on. What skill is there in the mob pushing and shoving? It is nothing more than a way of bringing on a sweat. No, we must move with the times. I know the times moves with me. The captains will moan, no doubt, but they are getting old. Dying in the game is a romantic idea when you are young, but when you are older, the boot is in the other ear. They know this, even if they won't admit it, and while they will protest, they will take care not to be taken seriously. In fact, far from taking, I am giving much. Acceptance, recognition, a certain standing, a gold-ish cup, and the chance to keep what remains of their teeth. All she could manage after this was, All right, but you tricked them. Really? They did not have to drink to excess, did they? You knew they would. No, I suspected they might. They could have been more cautious. They should have been more cautious. I'd prefer to say that I led them along the correct path with a little guile rather than drove them along it with sticks. I possess many types of stick, Miss Sugarbean. And you've been spying on me. You knew about the dainties. Spying? Madam, it was once said of a great prince that his every thought was of his people. Like him, I watch over my people. I'm just better at it, that's all. As for the dainties business, that was a simple deduction from the known facts of human nature. There was a lot that Glenda wanted to say, but in some very definite way she sensed that the interview, or at least the part of it that involved her opening her mouth, was over. Nevertheless, she said, "'Why aren't you drunk?' "'I beg your pardon. "'You must weigh about half of what they do, "'and all of them went home in wheelbarrows. "'You drank as much as them, "'and you look as fresh as a daisy. "'What is the trick? "'Did you get the wizards to magic the beer out of your stomach?' "'She had stopped pushing her luck a long time ago. "'Now it was out of control, "'like a startled cart-horse that can't stop "'because of the huge load bouncing and rumbling along behind it. "'Vetinari frowned. "'My dear lady,' Anyone drunk enough to let wizards, who themselves had just been partaking copiously of the fruit of the vine, I might add, take anything out of him, would already be so drunk as to be dead. To forestall your next comment, the hop is also technically a vine. I am, in fact, drunk. Is this not so, Drumnot? You did indeed consume some twelve pints of very strong malted beverage, sir. Technically, you must be drunk. Idiosyncratically put, Drumnot, thank you. "'You don't act drunk?' "'No, but I do act sober quite well, don't you think? "'And I must confess that this morning's crossword was something of a tussle. "'Pro-catalepsis and pleonasm in one day. "'I had to use the dictionary. "'The woman is a fiend. "'Nevertheless, thank you for coming, Miss Sugarbean. "'I recall your grandmother's bubble and squeak with great fondness. "'If she had been a sculptress, 
it would have been an exquisite statue, with no arms and an enigmatic smile. It is such a shame that some masterpieces are so transitory. The proud cook in Glenda rose unstoppably. But she passed the recipe on to me. A legacy better than jewels, said Vetinari, nodding. Actually, a few jewels would not have gone amiss, Glenda reflected. But there was a secret of bubble and squeak, of course, right out there in the open where everyone could miss it. And as for the truth of Salmagundi— "'I believe this audience is at an end, Miss Sugarbean,' said Vetinari. "'I have so much to do, and so have you, I am sure.' He picked up his pen and turned his attention to the documents in front of him. "'Good-bye, Miss Sugarbean.' And that was it. Somehow she was at the door, and it had almost closed behind her when a voice said, "'And thank you for your kindnesses to Nut.' The door clicked shut, nearly hitting her in the face as she spun round. "'Was that a wise thing for me to have said, do you think?' said Vetinari when she had gone. "'Possibly not, sir, but she will merely assume it is her that we are watching,' said Drumnot smoothly. "'Possibly we should. That's a sugar-bean woman for you, Drumnot. Little domestic slaves until they think someone has been wronged, and then they go to war like Queen Inky of Lanka, with chariot wheels spinning and arms and legs all over the place.' "'And no father,' observed Drumnot. "'Not very good for a child in those days.' "'Only served to make her tougher.' One can only hope she doesn't take it into her head to enter politics. Is that not what she is doing now, sir? Well noted, Drumnot. Do I appear drunk? In my opinion, no, sir, but you seem unusually talkative, coherently. To the minutest scruples, sir. The postmaster is waiting, sir, and some of the guild leaders want to talk to you urgently. I suspect they want to play football. Yes, sir, they intend to form teams. I cannot for the life of me understand why. Vetinari put down his pen. A drum knot, if you saw a ball lying invitingly on the ground, would you kick it? The secretary's forehead wrinkled. How would the invitation be couched, sir? I'm sorry? Would it be, for example, a written note attached to the ball by personal persons unknown? I was rather inclining to the idea that you might perhaps feel simply that the whole world was silently willing you to give said ball a hearty kick. No, sir. There are too many variables. Possibly an enemy or japester might have assumed that I would take some action of the kind and made the ball out of concrete or similar material in the hope I might do myself a serious or humorous injury, so I would check first. And then, if all was in order, you would kick the ball? To what purpose or profit, sir? Interesting question. I suppose for the joy of seeing it fly. Drumnot seemed to consider this for a while, and then shook his head. "'I'm sorry, sir, but you have lost me at this point.' "'Ah, uh, you are a pillar of rock in a world of changes, Drumnot. Well done.' "'I was wondering if I could just add something, sir,' said the secretary solemnly. "'The floor is yours, Drumnot. I would not like it thought that I do not buy my own paper clips, sir. I enjoy owning my own paper clips. It means that they are mine. I thought it helpful I should tell you that in a measured and non-confrontational way.' Vetinari looked at the ceiling for a few moments, and then said, "'Thank you for your frankness. I shall consider the record straightened and the matter closed. Thank you, sir.' Sator Square was where the city went when it was upset, baffled, or fearful. People who had no real idea why they were doing so congregated to listen to other people who also did not know anything, on the basis that ignorance shared is ignorance doubled. 
There were clusters of people there this morning, and several scratch teams, for it is written, or more probably scrawled on a wall somewhere, that wherever two or more are gathered together, at least one will have something to kick. Tin cans and tightly wound balls of rag were annoying adults on all sides, but as Glenda hurried nearer, the big doors of the university opened and Ponder Stibbons stepped out, somewhat inexpertly bouncing one of the wretched new leather balls. Gloing! Silence clanged as rolling cans rattled on unheeded. All eyes were on the wizard and on the ball. He threw it down and there was a double gloing as it bounced off the stones, and then he kicked it. It was a bit wussy as kicks went, that kick, but no one in the square had ever kicked anything even one-tenth as far, and every male chased after it, propelled by ancient instinct. They've won, Glenda thought glumly, a ball that goes glowing when others go clunk. Well, where's the contest? She hurried on to the back entrance. In a world that was getting too complicated, where she could barge in on the black-hearted tyrant and walk out unscathed, she needed a place to go that wasn't spinning. The night kitchen was as familiar as her bedroom, her place, under her control. She could face anything there. There was a figure lounging against the wall by the rubbish bins, and for some reason she identified it right away, despite the heavy cloak and the hat pulled down over the eyes. No one she had ever met could relax as perfectly as Pepe. "'Watch her, Glenda,' said a voice from under the hat. "'What are you doing here?' she said. "'Do you know how hard it is to find somebody in this city "'when you can't tell anyone what they look like "'and aren't really sure you can remember their name?' said Pepe. "'Where's Jules?' "'I don't know,' she said. "'I haven't seen her since last night.' "'It might be a good idea to find her before other people do,' said Pepe. "'What people?' said Glenda. Pepe shrugged. "'Everybody,' he said. "'They're mostly looking in the dwarf districts right now, "'but it can only be a matter of time. "'We can't move down at the shop for them, "'and it was all I could do to sneak out.' "'What are they after her for?' said Glenda, panic-rising. "'I saw in the paper that people were trying to find her, "'but she hasn't done anything wrong.' "'I don't think you exactly grasp what's going on,' said the possible dwarf. "'They want to find her to ask her a lot of questions.' "'Has this got anything to do with Lord Vetinari?' said Glenda, suspiciously. "'I wouldn't have thought so,' said Pepe. "'What sort of questions, then?' "'Oh, you know, what is your favourite colour? What do you like to eat? Are you an item with anybody? What advice do you have for young people today? Do you wax? Where do you get your hair done? What is your favourite spoon?' "'I don't think she's got her favourite spoon,' said Glenda, waiting for the world to make some sense. Pepe patted her on the shoulder. "'Look, she's on the front page of the paper, isn't she? "'And the Times keeps on at us about wanting to do a lifestyle profile of her. "'That might not actually be a bad thing, but it's up to you.' "'I don't think she's got a lifestyle,' said Glenda, a little bewildered. "'She's never said. And she doesn't wax. She hardly even dusts. "'Anyway, just tell them all she doesn't want to talk to anybody.' "'Pepe's expression went strange for a moment. "'Then he said with care, like a man or dwarf, struggling to be heard across a cultural divide. "'Do you think I was talking about furniture?' "'Well, what else? And I don't think her housework is anyone else's business.' "'Don't you understand? She's popular, and the more we tell people they can't talk to her, the more they want to. And the more you say no, the more interested they become. People want to know all about her,' said Pepe. "'Like what her favourite spoon is,' said Glenda. "'I might have been a bit ironic,' said Pepe. "'But there's newspaper writers all over the city looking for her, "'and Bubble wants to do a two-page spread on her.' "'He paused. "'That means they'll write about her and it'll take two pages,' 
he volunteered helpfully. The low king of the dwarfs has said that she is an icon for our times, according to Satblat. What's Satblat? said Glenda. Oh, the dwarf newspaper, said Pepe. You'll probably never see it. But she was just in a fashion show, wailed Glenda. She was just walking up and down. I'm sure she doesn't want to get involved in all that sort of thing. Pepe gave her a sharp look. Are you? he said. And then she thought, really thought about Juliet, who would read Bubble from cover to cover, wouldn't generally go near the Times, but would absorb all kinds of rubbish about frivolous and silly people, people that glittered. I don't know where she is, she said. I really haven't seen her since yesterday. Ah, a mystery disappearance, said Pepe. Look, we're already learning about this sort of thing down at the shop. Can we go somewhere a bit more private? I hope none of them followed me up here. Well, I can smuggle you in through the back entrance, as long as there isn't a bledlow around, said Glenda. Fine by me, I'm used to that sort of thing. She led him through the doorway and into the maze of cellars and yards that contrasted rather interestingly with the fine frontage of Unseen University. Got anything to drink, said Pepe behind her. Water, snapped Glenda. I'll drink water when fish climb out of it to take a piss, but thank you all the same, said Pepe. And then Glenda caught the smell of baking coming from the night kitchen. She was the only one who baked in her kitchen. No one else was supposed to bake in her kitchen. Baking was her responsibility, hers. She ran up the steps with Pepe behind her and noted that the mystery cook had yet to master the second most important rule of cooking, which was to tidy things up afterwards. The place was a mess. There were even lumps of dough on the floor. In fact, it looked as though it had been possessed by some kind of frenzy, and in the middle of it all, curled up on Glenda's battered and slightly rancid old armchair, was Juliet. Just like sleeping beauty, ain't it? said Pepe behind her. Glenda ignored him and hurried along the rows of ovens. She's been baking pies. What on earth did she want to come along and bake pies for? She's never been any good at baking pies. That's because I've never let her bake a pie, she told herself. That's because as soon as she found anything difficult, you took it away and did it yourself, her inner voice scolded. Glenda opened oven door after oven door. They had arrived just in time. By the smell of it, a couple of dozen assorted pies were cooked to a turn. How about a drink, said Pepe, in whom thirst sprang eternal. I'm sure there's brandy. Every kitchen has some brandy in it somewhere. He watched as Glenda pulled the pies out, using her apron to protect her hands. Pepe regarded the pies with the indifference of a man who likes to drink his meals, and listened to Glenda's sotto voce monologue as pie after pie was laid out on the table. I never told her to do this. Why did she do this? Because I did tell her to do this, sort of, that's why. And these are not half bad pies, she said more loudly, in surprise. Juliet opened her eyes, looked around blearily, and then her face contorted in panic. It's okay, I've taken them all out, said Glenda. Well done. I didn't know what else to do, and Trev was busy with the footballing, and I thought they'd be wanting pies tomorrow, and I thought I'd better do some, said Juliet. Sorry. Glenda took a step backwards. How to begin, she wondered. How to unravel it, and then ravel it all back up again in a better shape, because she had been wrong. Juliet hadn't just walked up and down with clothes on. She had become some kind of a dream, a dream of clothes, sparkling and alive and tantalisingly possible. And in Glenda's memory of the fashion show, she literally shone, as if being lit from the inside. It was a kind of magic, and it shouldn't be making pies. She cleared her throat. I've taught you a lot of things, haven't I, Juliet? 
said Glenda. Yes, Glenda, said Juliet. And they've always been useful, haven't they? Yes, Glenda. I remember it was you that said I should always keep my hand on my apony, and I'm very glad that you did. There was a strange noise from Pepe, and Glenda, feeling her face go red, didn't dare look at him. Then I've got a bit more advice for you, Juliet. Yes, Glenda. First, never ever apologise for anything that doesn't need apologising for, said Glenda, and especially never apologise for just being yourself. Yes, Glenda. Got that? Yes, Glenda. No matter what happens, always remember that you now know how to make a good pie. Yes, Glenda. Pepe is here because Bababble wants to write something about you, said Glenda. Your picture was in the paper again this morning, and Glenda stopped. She is going to be all right, isn't she? She said. Pepe paused in the act of surreptitiously removing a bottle from a cupboard. "You can trust me and Madame on that," he said. "Only people who are very trustworthy would dare to look as untrustworthy as me and Madame." And all she will have to do is show off clothes. Don't drink that. That's cider vinegar. I'm only drinking the cider bit," said Pepe. "Yes, all she'll have to do is show off clothes. But to judge from the mob back at the shop, there's going to be people who wanted to show off shoes, hats, hairstyles. No hanky panky," said Glenda. "I don't think you'll find anywhere in the world a greater expert in both hanky and panky than Madame." In fact, I would be surprised if you, Glenda, knew one hundredth of the hanky and panky that she does, especially as she invented quite a lot of it herself. And since we'll notice it when we see it, we'll keep an eye on her. And she's got to eat proper meals and get a good night's sleep," said Glenda. Pepe nodded, although she expected that both those concepts were quite alien to him. And paid," she added. We'll cut her in on the profits if she works exclusively for us," said Pepe. Madame wants to talk to you about that. Yes, someone might want to pay her more than you do," said Glenda. "My, my, my! How fast we learn! I'm sure Madame will have great fun talking to you." Juliet looked from one to the other, sleep still wreathing her face. "You want me to go back to the shop?" "I don't want you to do anything," said Glenda. "It's up to you, okay? It's just up to you. But it seems to me that if you stay here, then basically what you'll be doing is pies. Well, not just pies." Said Juliet. Well, no, fair enough. There are also flans, bubble and squeak, and assorted late-night dainties. Said Glenda. But you know what I mean. On the other hand, you could go and show off all these fancy clothes, and go to lots of fancy places a long, long way from here, and see a lot of new people, and you'd know that if it all goes pear-shaped, you could always make it pie-shaped. Ha! <laughs> nice one," said Pepe, who'd found another bottle. I really would like to go," said Juliet. Then go now. I mean, right now, or at least as soon as he's finished drinking the ketchup. But I'll have to go back for my stuff. Glenda reached down inside her vest and pulled out a burgundy-coloured booklet with the seal of Ankh-Morpork on it. What's that? said Juliet. Your bank book. Your money's safe in the bank, and you can take it out any time you want. Juliet turned the bank book over and over in her hands. I don't think anyone in my family's ever been in a bank except for Uncle Jeffrey, and they caught up with him even before he got home. Keep quiet about it. Don't go home. Buy yourself lots of new stuff. Get yourself sorted out, and then go back and see your dad and everybody when you have. The point is, even if you don't go right away, in your mind you should always be going. But the important thing is to go right now. Move out. Get on. Climb up. All the things I should have done. What about Trev? Said Juliet. Glenda had to think about that. How are things with you and Trev then? I saw you two talking last night. Talking is allowed," said Juliet defensively. 
Anyhow, he was only telling me how he was going to get himself a better job. Doing what? said Glenda. I've never seen him doing a straight day's work in all the years I've known him. He says he's going to find something, said Juliet. He says Nut told him to. He said Nut said that when Trev finds out who Trev is like, he will like know what he can do. So I told him he was Trevor Likely, and he said that was, you know, helpful. I'm stuck, aren't I? Glenda told herself. I'm talking about changing and getting out, so I have to allow that maybe he's going to too. Aloud, she said, It's up to you. It's all up to you. But just mind that he keeps his hands to himself. He always keeps his hands to himself, said Juliet. It's a bit worrying. I've never had to think about kneeing him in the tonka, not once. There was a strangled laugh from Pepe, who had just discovered the wow wow sauce. The bottle was almost empty, and in theory, he should have no stomach left. Never ever, said Glenda, mystified at this unnatural history. Now he's always very polite and just a bit sad. That must mean he's planning something, Glenda's inner self provided. She said, Well, it's up to you. I can't help here. But remember, you've always got your knee. And what about. Juliet began. Look, said Glenda firmly. Either you go off now and see the world and earn lots of money and get your picture in the papers and all of the other things I know you would really like to do, or you have to sort it out for yourself. We're going to be here for some time, said Pepe. You know, this sauce would be nice with a little bit of vodka in it. It really would give it a little bit of zest, a little bit of sparkle. Come to think of it, a lot of vodka would be even better. But I love him, Juliet wailed. That's all right then. Stay here, said Glenda. Have you even kissed? No, he never quite gets round to it. Perhaps he's one of those gentlemen who don't like the ladies, said Pepe primly. And we could really do without your input, snapped Glenda, turning on him. I mean, for some of the others, like Rotten Johnny, I nearly wear my knee out, but Trev's just swee all the time. Look, I know you told me to keep out of this, and I know I've been a terrible sinner in my time, and hope to remain so, but I have been around the houses more times than a postman, and the reason for this imp arse is obvious, Pepe volunteered. He's got the nous to see that she's so beautiful that she should be painted standing on some shell somewhere without her vest on, and little fat pink babies inexplicably zooming around all over the place, and he's some kid with nothing more than a bit of street smarts. I mean, it's pointless, isn't it? He's not going to stand a chance, and he knows it, even if he doesn't know he knows it. I'd give him a kiss if he wanted one, and would definitely not knee him in the tonka, said Juliet. You have to sort it out," said Glenda. "I can't sort it out for you. If I tried, it would get sorted out all wrong." But Juliet began. "No, that's it," said Glenda. "Off you go. Buy yourself lots of nice stuff. It's your money. And if you don't look after her, Mister Pepe, a knee would only be the start." Pepe nodded and very gently tugged Juliet away and down the stone steps. Now, what would I do at this point if I were in a romantic novel? Glenda said to herself as the footsteps died away. Her reading had left her pretty much an expert on what to do if you were in a romantic novel. Although one of the things that really annoyed her about romantic novels, as she had confided to Mister Wobble, was that no one did any cooking in them. After all, cooking was important. Would it hurt to have a pie-making sequence? Would a novel called Pride and Buns be totally out of the question? Even a few tips on how to make fairy cakes would help, and be pretty much in period as well. She'd be a little happier if, even, the lovers could be thrown into the mixing bowl of life. At least it would be some acknowledgment that people actually ate food. 
Around about now she knew, and knew all through her body, that she should be dissolving into a flood of tears. She started cleaning up the floor. Then she cleaned up the ovens. She always left them sparkling, but that was no reason not to clean them again. She used an old toothbrush to ease minute amounts of dirt from odd corners, scoured every pot with fine sand, emptied the grates, riddled the cinders, swept the floor, tied two brooms together to dislodge the spider's webs of years from the high wall, and scrubbed again until the soapy water poured down the stone stairs and washed away the footprints. Oh, yes, and one other thing. There were some anchovies on the freezing slab. She warmed up a couple and went to the large three-legged cauldron in the corner of the kitchen, where last night she had chalked the words, Do not touch. She took off the lid and peered into its depths. The crab that Verity Pushpram had given her last night, which seemed a very long time ago now, waved its eyeballs at her. I wonder what would have happened if I had left the lid off, she said. I wonder how fast crabs learn. She dropped in the soggy anchovies, which seemed to meet with crabby approval. With that done, she stood in the middle of the kitchen and looked for something else to clean. The black iron would never shine, but every surface had been scrubbed and dried. As for the plates, you could eat your dinner off them. If you wanted a job done properly, you had to do it yourself. Juliet's version of cleanliness was next to godliness, which was to say it was erratic, past all understanding, and was seldom seen. Something brushed against her face. She absent-mindedly swiped at it and found her fingers holding a black feather. Those wretched things in the pipes. Someone ought to do something about them. She took her longest broom and banged on a pipe. "'Go on! Get out of there!' she yelled. There was a scuffling in the darkness and a faint hawk hawk. "'Excuse me, miss!' said a voice, and she looked down the steps into the misshapen face of—what was his name? Oh, yes, good morning, Mr. Concrete, she said to the troll. She couldn't help but notice the brown stains coming from his nose. Can't find Mr. Triv, Concrete stated. Haven't seen him all morning, said Glenda. Can't find Mr. Triv, the troll repeated louder. Why do you need him? said Glenda. As far as she knew, the vats just about ran themselves— you told Concrete to dribble candles, and he dribbled candles until he ran out of candles. "'Mr. Nut's sick,' said Concrete. "'Can't find Mr. Trev.' "'Take me to Mr. Nut right now,' said Glenda. It's a bit harsh to call anybody a denizen, but the people who lived and worked in the candle vats fitted the word to a T. The vats were, in fact, their den. If you ever saw them anywhere in the underground maze, they were always scuttling very fast, but most of the time they just worked and slept and stayed alive. Nut was lying on an old mattress with his arms wrapped tightly around himself. Glenda took one look and turned to the troll. "'Go and find Mr. Trev,' she said. "'Can't find Mr. Trev,' said the troll. "'Keep on looking!' She knelt down beside Nut. His eyes had rolled back inside his head. "'Mr. Nut, can you hear me?' He seemed to wake. "'You must go away,' he said. "'It will be very dangerous. The door will open.' "'What door is that?' she said, trying to remain cheerful. She looked at the denizens, who were watching her with a kind of meek horror. "'Can't one of you find something to put over him?' The mere question sent them scurrying in panic. "'I have seen the door, so it will open again,' said Nut. "'I can't see any door, Mr. Nut,' said Glenda, looking around. Nut's eyes opened wide. "'It's in my head.' There was no privacy to the vats. It was just a wider room off the long, endless corridor. People went past all the time. "'I think you may have been overdoing it, Mr. Nutt,' said Glenda. "'You rush around working all hours, worrying yourself sick. You need a rest.' 
To her surprise, one of the denizens turned up holding a blanket, quite large parts of which were still flexible. She put it over him just as Trev arrived. He had no choice about arriving, as concrete was dragging him by the collar. He looked down at Nut, and then up at Glenda. "'What's happened to him?' "'I don't know.' She raised a finger to her head, and swivelled it a little, the universal symbol for gone nuts. "'You must go away. Things will be very dangerous,' Nut moaned. "'Please tell us what is going on,' said Glenda. "'Please tell me.' "'I can't,' said Nut. "'I cannot say the words.' "'There are words you want to say,' said Trev. "'Words that don't want to be said. Strong words.' "'Can't we help?' Glenda persevered. "'Are you sick?' said Trev. "'No, Mr. Trev. I passed an adequate bowel motion this morning.' That was a flash of the old nut, precise but slightly odd. "'Sick in the head?' said Glenda. That came out of desperation. "'Yes.' "'In the head,' said Nut. "'Shadows. Doors. Can't tell you. "'Is there anyone who can cure that kind of sickness?' Nut didn't answer for a while, and then said, "'Yes, you must find me a philosopher trained in Überwald. "'They will help the thoughts come straight.' "'Isn't that what you did for Trev?' said Glenda. "'You told him what he was thinking about his dad and everything, "'and that made him a lot happier, didn't it, Trev?' "'Yes, it did,' said Trev. "'And there's no need to elbow me in the ribs like that. "'It really did help.' "'Couldn't you be hypnotised?' he said to Nut. "'I saw a man in the musical once, and he just waved his shiny watch at them, "'and it's amazing the kind of things they did. Bark like dogs, even.' "'Yes. Hypnosis is an important part of the philosophy,' said Nut. "'It helps to relax the patient, so that the thoughts get a chance to be heard.' "'Well, there you are, then,' said Glenda. "'Why not try doing it on yourself? "'I'm sure I could find something shiny for you to wave.' Trev pulled his beloved tin can out of his pocket. "'Tra-la, and I think I've got a piece of string here somewhere.' "'That is all very well, but I would not be able to ask myself the right kinds of questions, "'because I will have been hypnotised. "'How the questions are posed is very important,' said Nut. "'I know what,' said Trev. "'I'll tell you to ask yourself to ask the right questions. "'You'd know what questions to ask if it was someone else, wouldn't you?' "'Yes, Mr. Trev. "'You didn't need to hypnotise Trev,' Glenda pointed out. "'No, but his thoughts were close to the surface. "'I fear that mine will not be so easy to access. "'Can you really be hypnotised to ask yourself the right questions?' "'In the doors of deception, Fussbinder did report on a way of hypnotising himself,' said Nut. "'It is conceivably possible,' his voice trailed off. "'Then let's get on with it,' said Trev. "'Better out than in,' as my old granny used to say. "'I think perhaps that is not such a good idea.' "'Didn't do me any harm,' said Trev robustly. "'The things that I do not know, the things that I do not know,' muttered Nut. "'What about them?' said Glenda. "'The things that I do not know,' said Nut, "'I think are behind the door, because I think I put them there, "'because I think I do not want to know them.' "'So you must know what it is you don't want to know,' said Glenda. "'Yes.' "'Well, how bad could it be?' said Trev. "'Perhaps it is very bad,' said Nut. "'What would you say if it was me?' said Glenda. "'I want the truth now.' "'Well,' said Nut, stuttering slightly, "'I, I think I would say that you should look be behind the door "'to face the things that you do not want to know, "'so we may confront them together. "'That would certainly be the advice of von Cladpol "'in Doppelter Berurung Semfingdung. "'Indeed, doing so would almost be a fundamental part "'of the analysis of the hidden mind.' "'Well, then,' said Glenda, standing back, "'but what sort of bad things could possibly be in your head, Miss Glenda?' said Nut, "'managing gallantry even in the fetid circumstances of the vats.' "'Oh, there's a few,' said Glenda. "'You don't go through life without picking up a few.' "'I've had dreams in the night,' said Nut. 
Oh, well, everyone has bad dreams, said Glenda. These were more than dreams, said Nut. He unfolded his arms and held up a hand. Trev whistled. Glenda said, Oh, and then, should they be like that? I have no idea, said Nut. Do they hurt? No. Well, maybe that sort of thing happens when goblins get a bit older, said Trev. Yes, perhaps they need claws, said Glenda. Yesterday was wonderful, said Nut. I was part of the team. The team were around me. I was happy, and now... Trev held up a piece of grubby string and a battered but shiny tin can. Perhaps you should find out. I might be getting all this wrong, said Glenda, but if you don't want to know what the things are that you don't want to know, then that means that there are going to be even more things that you don't want to know, and I imagine that sooner or later, if that goes on, your head will cave in around the hole. There is something in what both of you say, said Nut reluctantly. Then give me a hand to put him on the couch, said Trev. Should he be covered in sweat like that? I don't think so, said Glenda. I would be happier if you chained me down, said Nut. What? Why do you think we should do that? said Glenda. I think you should beware. Some things leak around the door. They may be bad. Glenda looked at the claws. They were a shiny black and, in their way, quite neat, but it was hard to imagine them being used for, say, painting a picture or cooking an omelette. They were claws, and claws were for clawing, weren't they? But this was Mr. Nut. Even with claws, it was still Mr. Nut. Shall we get started? said Trev. I insist on the chains, said Nut. There are all sorts of metal things in the old storeroom four doors down. I saw chains there. Please hurry. Automatically, Glenda looked down at the claws and saw they had grown longer. Yes, Trev, please hurry. Trev followed her gaze and said brightly, I'll be back before you know I've gone. In fact, it was less than a couple of minutes, and she could hear the clanking as he dragged them all the way down the passageway. Glenda was fighting tears at the simple strangeness of the whole business. Nut lay there, looking at the ceiling, as they lifted him onto the couch and carefully wrapped the chains around him. "'There's padlocks, but there's no keys. I can close them, but I can't open them.' "'Close them,' said Nut. Glenda had very seldom cried, and she was trying not to now. "'I don't think we should be doing this,' she said. "'Not here in the vats. People are watching.' "'Please swing your pendulum, Mr. Trev,' said Nut. Trev shrugged and did so. "'Now you have to start telling me that I'm feeling sleepy, Mr. Trev,' said Nut. Trev cleared his throat and swung the shiny can back and forth. "'You are definitely feeling sleepy. Extremely sleepy.' "'That is good. I am feeling enormously sleepy,' said Nut wearily. "'And now you must ask me to analyse myself.' "'What does that mean?' said Glenda sharply, always on the lookout for dangerous words. "'I'm sorry,' said Nut. "'I mean... Help me examine in detail the workings of my own mind by means of question and answer. But I don't know the questions to ask, said Trev. I do, said Nut patiently, but you must instruct me to do it. Trev shrugged. Mr. Nut, you must find out what is wrong with Mr. Nut, he said. Ah, yes, said Nut, his tone of voice changing slightly. Are we comfortable, Mr. Nut? Yes, thank you. The chains hardly chafe at all. Very good. Now tell me about your mother, Mr. Nutt. I am familiar with the concept, but I never had a mother, as I recall. Thank you for asking, anyway, said Nutt. And so the monological dialogue began. The other two sat on the stone steps as the quiet voice unravelled itself, until, Ah, yes, the library. Is there something in the library, Mr. Nutt? There are many books in the library. What else is in the library, Mr. Nutt? 
There are many chairs and ladders in the library. And what is in the library that you do not want to tell me about, Mr. Nutt? They waited. At last the voice said, There's a cupboard in the library. Is there anything special about this cupboard, Mr. Nutt? Another pause, another faint little voice. I must not open the cupboard. Why is half of him talking like someone from Uberwald? said Glenda to Trev, forgetting the notoriously acute sense of hearing. Questions asked in a mild Uberwaldian accent in examinations of this nature appear to put the patient more at ease, said Nutt. And now I would be pleased if you would not make with the interruptions. Sorry, said Glenda. Don't mention it. So, why must you not open the cupboard, Mr. Nutt? Because I promised ladyship that I would not open the cupboard. And did you open the cupboard, Mr. Nutt? I promised ladyship that I would not open the cupboard. And did you open the cupboard, Mr. Nutt? A much longer pause this time. I promised ladyship that I would not open the cupboard. Did you learn many things in the castle, Mr. Nutt? Many things. Did you learn how to make the lockpicks, Mr. Nutt? Yes. Where is the door now, Mr. Nutt? It is in front of me. You opened the door, Mr. Nutt. You think you did not, but you did. And now it is very important that you open the door again. But what is inside the door is wrong. The two eavesdroppers craned to hear. Nothing is wrong. Nothing is wrong at all. In the past you opened the door in the foolishness of childhood. Now, to understand the door, you must open it with the wisdom of the adult. Open the door, Mr. Nutt, and I will walk with you to it. But I no longer have the lockpick. Nature will provide, Mr. Nutt. Glenda shivered. It had to be her imagination, but they didn't seem to be in the candle vats any more. A corridor stretched in front of Nutt. He felt everything drop away from him. Chains, clothes, flesh, thoughts. All there was was the corridor, and, drifting gently towards him, the cupboard. It was glass-fronted. Light glinted off the beveled edges. He raised a hand and extended the claw. It cut through wood and glass as if they were air. There was one shelf in the cupboard and one book on the shelf. There was a title on it, in silver, and chains around it in steel. These were much easier to break through than last time as well. He sat down on a chair that had not been there until he sat down, and began to read the book. The book was called Ork. When the scream came, it didn't come from Nut, but from overhead in the tangle of pipes. A skinny woman in a long black robe, perhaps a witch, Glenda thought, shocked by the suddenness, dropped down onto the flagstones and looked around like a cat. No, more like a bird, Glenda thought, jerky. And then it opened its mouth and screamed, Ork! Ork! Danger! Danger! Beware! It made a lunge towards the couch, but Trev stepped in the way. Foolish! The orc will eat your eyes! And now this was a duet, because another of the creatures had slid down out of the gloom on what might have been a billowing cloak, or might have been wings. They never stopped moving, each in a different direction, trying to get closer to the couch. Do not be afraid! squawked one of them. We are on your side! We are here to protect you! Glenda, trembling in shock, managed to stand up. She folded her arms. She always felt better like that. Who do you think you are, dropping out of the ceiling and shouting at people? And you're shedding feathers? That's disgusting. This is a... this is quite near a food preparation area. Yeah, push off, said Trev. That's telling them, said Glenda out of the corner of her mouth. I bet that took a lot of thinking. You do not understand, said a creature. The faces really were strange, as if someone had made a bird out of a woman. 
"'You are in great danger. Ork!' "'From you,' said Glenda. "'From the Ork!' said the creature, and the word was a scream. "'Ork!' In the shadows in front of the open cupboard, the soul of Nut turned a page. He felt someone at his elbow and looked up into the face of Ladyship. "'Why did you tell me not to open the book, Ladyship?' "'Because I wanted you to read it,' said her voice. "'You had to find the truth for yourself. "'That is how we all find the truth.' "'And if the truth is terrible?' "'I think you know the answer to that one, Nut,' said the voice of Ladyship. "'The answer is that, terrible or not, it is still the truth,' said Nut. "'And then,' said her voice, like a teacher encouraging a promising pupil, "'and then the truth can be changed,' said Nut. "'Mr. Nut is a goblin,' said Trev. "'Yeah, right,' said the creature, and the phrase seemed incredibly exotic for someone whose face was looking more bird-like all the time. "'If I scream, a lot of people will come running,' said Glenda. "'And what will they do?' said the creature. "'And what would they do?' Glenda thought. "'They would stand around saying, "'What's all this, then?' and asking all the same questions we are. She shuffled again as one of the things tried to get to the couch. "'The orc will kill,' said a third voice, and another of the things dropped down almost in front of Glenda's face. Its breath was like carrion. "'Mr. Nutt is kind and gentle and has never hurt anyone,' said Glenda. "'Who didn't deserve it?' said Trev hurriedly. "'But now the orc knows it is an orc,' said a creature, and now they were milling backwards and forwards in a ghastly pavan. "'I don't think you're allowed to touch us,' said Trev. "'I really don't think you can touch us.' He sat down suddenly beside the recumbent nut and dragged Glenda down next to him. "'I think you have to obey rules,' said Trev. The moving figures stopped instantly. That was somehow creepier than their movement. They stood there as frozen as statues. "'They've got talons,' said Glenda quietly. "'I can see their talons.' "'Pounces,' said Trev. "'What are you talking about?' "'Those big claws are called pounces. The ones at the back are called talons, the ones they carry the prey off with.' "'Everyone gets that wrong.' "'Except you,' said Glenda. "'You're like the big expert on horrible bird-like creatures all of a sudden.' "'I can't help it. Sometimes you just pick stuff up,' said Trev. "'We must protect you,' said one of the females. "'We don't need protecting from Mr. Nutt. He's our friend,' said Glenda. "'And how many of your friends have claws?' "'What have we got to worry about here, in Unseen University, "'which has got great big thick walls "'and is pretty much generally crawling with wizards?' "'One of the women stretched her neck "'until her face was a few inches from Trev's. "'There is an orc in here with you!' "'There was a clink of chain. "'Nut had moved slightly. "'You work for somebody, don't you?' said Trev. "'You've got tiny little heads. "'You can't have enough brains to think this up for yourself. "'Do the wizards know you're here?' "'Glenda screamed.' She had never screamed before, not in a proper way, straight up from the bottom of her terror. Cutting her finger while using the knife carelessly didn't count, and almost certainly would never have been so loud. The scream echoed along the passages, bounced into the cellars, and made the undercrofts ring. Contrary to popular belief and hope, people don't usually come running when they hear a scream. That's not how humans work. Humans look at other humans and say, ''Did you hear a scream?'' because the first scream might just have been you screaming inside your head, or a horse backfiring. Glenda screamed a second time, and, as her lungs had got into practice, she managed to make this one even louder. There were hurrying footsteps from both directions. That was reassuring. She was not certain how reassuring was the little clink and sliding of metal that suggested a chain had broken. The creatures went into an instant panic, trying to take wing at once. 
they were as clumsy as herons and got in one another's way. "'And don't come back!' she yelled as they disappeared back into the dark. Then she turned to Trev, her heart thumping, and said, "'What is an orc?' "'I don't know. I think it's some kind of old bogeyman,' said Trev. "'And what were those things?' "'I know it sounds silly,' said Trev, "'but we saw one of them the other night, and he seems to think they're like friends.' Butchers, bakers, butlers, and Bledlows came hurrying out of the dark corridors, and one of them was Bledlow Nobbs, no relation, who was inexplicably wearing just his official hat, a string vest, and a pair of shorts. Far too short and far too tight for a man the size of Bledlow Nobbs, no relation. He looked at Glenda and then glared at Trev. People like Trev were, as far as Bledlow Nobbs, no relation, was concerned, an automatic enemy. Did you scream? What's been going on? he said. I'm sorry I made an improper suggestion, Trev said. He looked at Glenda, his expression saying, Help me out here. I'm afraid I let my girlish modesty get the better of me, she said, cursing him with her eyes. It must have been a pretty strange suggestion, said a baker, who seemed to think that an extremely long loaf would have been a suitable aid to combat, but he was grinning, and grinning was good. If this ends up with no more than sniggering and grinning, then we'll all be happy, Glenda thought. Hard to live down afterwards, but still good. But what's that bloke chained to that bed for? said the Bledlow. Yeah, what kind of improper suggestions go on around here? said the baker. He really was having fun. I am going to kill someone before the end of all this, and it might just have to be myself, thought Glenda. Isn't that Mr. Nutt? said the Bledlow. We are supposed to be in training in five minutes. There was another clink behind Glenda, and Nutt's voice said, Don't worry, Alphonse, I often do this trick. Dynamic tension, you know, helps build up the muscles. Alphonse, said the baker, looking incredulously at the Bledlow. I thought your name was Alfred. Alf for short. Alphonse is a Quirmian name, if ever I've heard one. You're not from there, are you? That was an accusation as much as a question. What's wrong with Elf being short for Alphonse? said the Bledlow. He had very large hands that might have troubled even Mustrum Ridcully in a game of patter-cake. Also, his ears were going red, never a good sign in a man of his size. Oh, I never said it wasn't a nice name, said the baker, belatedly using his loaf, but I would never have figured you for an Alphonse. It just goes to show that you never can tell. I am an orc, said Nutt quietly. Actually, Alphonse is quite a nice name, the baker went on. The font spoils it a bit, but the Alf I quite like. He paused and turned to Nutt. What do you mean, orc? An orc, said Nutt again. And away in the distant central heating pipes there was a scream of, Orc! Orc! That be daft! There's no such thing as orcs any more. They all got killed off hundreds of years ago. Bloody hard to kill, too, I read somewhere, said a butler. In the latter part of your statement you are substantially correct, said Nutt, still chained to the couch. However, nevertheless, I am an orc. Glenda looked down. You told me you're a goblin, Mr. Nutt. You told me you're a goblin. I was misinformed, said Nutt. I know I am an orc. I think I have always known that I am an orc. I have opened the door and read the book, and I know the truth of my soul, and I am an orc. And for some reason I am an orc with a terrible urge to smoke a cigar. But they were like these big horrible monsters that wouldn't stop fighting and were quite happy to tear off their own arm to use as a weapon, said Bledlow Nobbs, no relation. There was an article about them in bows and ammo. Every eye turned to Nutt's arms. "'Certainly that is the judgment of history,' said Nutt. He looked up at Glenda. "'I am so sorry,' he said. "'I disobeyed. Everybody does it, you see. Schnauzen Tintel says as much in his book, "'The Obedience of Disobedience.' 
so I wondered what was in the cupboard, and I already had some expertise with lockpicks. I opened the cupboard, I read the book, and— His chains clinked as he shifted position. I disobeyed. I think everybody does it. We are very good at hiding from ourselves what we do not want to know. Believe me, I was very good at keeping that from myself. But it leaks out, you see, in dreams and things when you have dropped your guard. I am an orc. There is no doubt about that. Okay, right. If you are an orc, right, then why are you not tearing my head off? said Bledlow Nobbs, no relation. Would you like me to? said Nut. Well, as it happens, no. Who cares? said Trev. It's all ancient history anyway. These days you see vampires hanging round all over the place, and we've got trolls and golems and zombies and all kinds of people just grafting away. Who cares what happened hundreds of years ago? Hang on a minute, hang on a minute, said the butler. He's not tearing your head off because he's chained down. So why did you get us to chain you down? said Glenda. So I wouldn't tear off anybody's head. I suspected the truth, although I didn't know what it was that I suspected. At least, I think it works like that. So that means you can't escape and tear us all limb from limb, said Bledlow Nobbs, no relation. No offence meant, but does this mean you won't be training us? I am sorry, said Nut, but as you can see, I'm rather inconvenienced. Have you all gone loony? Astonishingly, this came from Juliet, standing in the corridor. He's nuts. He potters around making candles and stuff. I see him around all the time, and he's never holding someone else's leg or head, and he likes his football, too. Glenda thought she could actually hear Trev's heartbeat. She hurried over to the girl. I told you to go, she hissed. I've come back to tell Trev about everything. After all, he did write such a lovely poem. She's got a point, said a man in a butcher's apron. I've seen him running around everywhere, and I've never seen him carrying any limbs. That's true, said the baker. And anyway, didn't he do all those lovely candles at the banquet last night? That doesn't sound very orc-like to me. And, said Bledlow Nobbs, no relation, he was training us yesterday, and he never once said, get in there, lads, and tear their heads off. Oh, yes, said the butler, who was making no friends as far as Glenda was concerned. Humans don't tear off heads, not like orcs. An orc, orc, echoed in the distance. He's been teaching us kinds of stuff you'd never think about, said the Bledlow, like playing the game with a blindfold on. Amazing stuff. More like philosophy than football, but damned good stuff. Tactical thinking and combat analysis is part of the orc makeup, said Nut. See? Now when he uses makeup, he's going to tear your head off, right? Didn't you meet my ex-wife? said the baker. Well, I'd draw the line if you wore makeup, said the butcher to general amusement. Being an orc is one thing, but we don't want a funny one. Glenda looked down at Nut. He was crying. My friends, I thank you for your trust in me, he said. Well, you know, you're like part of the team, said Bedlow Nobbs, no relation whose smile almost managed to conceal his nervousness. "'Thank you, Mr. Nobbs. That means a lot to me,' said Nut, standing up. That was quite a complex movement. It stayed in Glenda's mind for ever afterwards as a kind of slow-motion scene of bursting chains and cracking wood when Nut stood up as though he had been restrained by cobwebs. Pieces of chain spun off and hit the wall, padlocks broke. As for the couch, barely one piece remained attached to another. It dropped to the floor as so much firewood. "'Run for it, lads!' You would have needed some kind of special micrometer to work out which man said it first, but the stampede along the corridor was swift and over very quickly. "'You know,' said Trev, after a few moments' silence, "'at one point I thought this was all going very well.' "'Those women,' said Glenda, "'what were they?' Nut stood forlornly in the wreckage. A length of chain slithered off him like a serpent and landed on the flagstones. "'Them? 
he said. They are the little sisters of perpetual velocity. They come from a Phoebe. I think the name for their species is Furies. I think Ladyship sent them in case I tried to hurt anybody. The words came out without emphasis or emotion. But you haven't hurt anyone, said Glenda. But they ran away, said Nut, because of what I am. Well, you know they're ordinary people, said Glenda. They're twits, said Trev. Nut turned and walked down the opposite corridor, kicking off the remnants of wood and chain. But the world is full of ordinary people. You can't just let him go like that, said Juliet. You just can't. Look at him. He looks like he's been kicked. I'm his boss. That's my job, said Trev. Glenda caught Trev by the arm. No, I'll sort this out. Now you listen to me, Trev, likely. Under all that gab, you're a decent sort, so I'll tell you this. See Juliet over there. You know her. She works in the kitchens. You wrote her a lovely poem, didn't you? Ever heard of Emberella? Everyone's heard of Emberella. Well, you might not be my first choice for Prince Charming, but there's probably plenty worse. What the hell are you talking about? said Trev. Juliet's going to be leaving soon, isn't that right, Jules? Juliet's face was a picture. Well, er... Uh, and that's because she's been that girl in the papers. What, the shiny dwarf one with a beard? That's her, said Glenda. She's going to go off with the circus. Well, you know what I mean, with the fashion show at least. But she hasn't got a beard, said Trev. Blushing, Juliet delved into her apron and, to Glenda's surprise, produced the beard. They let me keep it, she said with a nervous giggle. Right, said Glenda. You say you love him. Trev, I don't know whether you love her or not. Time to make up your mind. You're both grown up, well, strictly speaking, and so you better sort yourselves out, because I don't see any fairy godmothers around. As for Mr. Nutt, he hasn't got anyone. She's going to leave the city, said Trev, realisation dawning slowly through a male mind. Oh, yes, for quite a long time, I suspect, said Glenda. She watched his face carefully. You haven't got much learning, and you haven't opened a book in your life, Trevor, likely, but you are smart, and you must know there is a wrong way and a right way to reply to what I have just told you. She watched the high-speed changes around his eyes as he thought, and then he said, Well, that's nice. It's the kind of thing she's always dreamed of. I'm very happy for her. You cunning bastard, you actually got it right, Glenda thought. You're not appearing to be thinking about yourself at all, because you know I'd have no time for you if you were. And who knows, you might just be genuine. In fact, heavens help me, I think you are, but I'd pull all my own teeth out rather than tell you. She likes you, you like her, and I've made a lot of silly mistakes. The two of you sort out what you want to do, and now, if I were you, I'd run before anyone else beats you to it. And can I offer you a word of advice, Trev? Don't be smart, be clever. Trev took Glenda by the shoulders and kissed her on both cheeks. Was that smart or clever? Get away with you, Trev Likely, she said, pushing him away, in the hope he wouldn't notice her blush. And now I'm going to see where Mr. Nutt has gone. I know where he's gone, said Trev. I thought I just told you two to go off and live happily ever after, said Glenda. You won't find him without me, said Trev. I'm sorry, Glenda, but we like him too. Do you think we should tell somebody, said Juliet. And what will they do, Glenda snapped. It'll just be like that log back there, all hanging around in the hope that somebody will come up with an idea. Anyway, she added, I'm sure the wizards upstairs know all about him. Oh, yes, I bet they do. She had to admit, ten minutes later, that Trev had been right. She probably wouldn't have noticed the door on the other side of another cluttered, abandoned cellar. Light shone from under the door. I followed him once, said Trev. Everyone should have a place to call their own. Yes, said Glenda, and she pushed open the door. 
She might as well have opened an oven. There were candles of every size and every colour, and many of them were burning. And in the middle of it was Nut, sitting behind a ramshackle table which was covered with candles. In front of him they burned in every colour. He was staring at them with a blank expression, and did not look up as they approached. You know, I fear that I will never really get the hang of blue, he said, as if to the air. Orange, of course, is ridiculously easy, and red goes without saying, and green is not difficult at all, but the best blue I could achieve, I have to admit, is very largely green. His voice trailed off. Are you all right? said Glenda. Do you mean, am I all right apart from being an orc? said Nut, with a very small smile. Well, yes, but that's not really your fault. It can't really be true, can it? said Trev. Glenda turned on him. What good is it saying that? she said. Well, they were supposed to have died out hundreds of years ago. Annihilated, said Nut. But some survived. I fear that when this oversight is revealed, there will be those who will endeavour to rectify the situation. Trev looked blankly at Glenda. He means he thinks they're going to try and kill him, she said. Nut stared at his candles. I must accumulate worth. I must be helpful. I must be friendly. I must make friends. If anyone comes to hurt you, said Glenda, I will kill them. I'm sure you won't try to pull a leg off, but I might. Trev, this needs a woman's touch. Yeah, I can see that. That wasn't clever, Trev likely. No, Mr. Nutt, you stay there, said Glenda, dragging Trev and Juliet back out into the corridor. Off you go. I want to talk to him alone. Nutt hung his head as she stepped back in. I'm sorry I'm spoiling it for everyone, he said. What's happened to your claws, Mr. Nutt? He stretched out his arm, and with a faint noise the claws extended. Oh, well, that's convenient, said Glenda. At least that means you can change your shirt. She thumped the table so the candles jumped. And now get up, she screamed. You are supposed to be training the team, Mr. Nutt. Don't you remember? You're supposed to be going out there and showing them how to play the football. I must accumulate worth, said Nutt, staring at the candles. Then train the team, Mr. Nutt. How can you be so certain that the orcs were that bad in any case? We did terrible things. They, said Glenda. They, not we, not you. And one thing I am certain of is that in a war no one is going to say that the other side is made up of very nice people. Now, how about you just run along to training? How hard can it be? You saw what happened, said Nutt. It could be very bad indeed. He picked up a nearly blue candle. I must think. Okay, said Glenda. She shut the door carefully behind her, walked a little way along the corridor, and looked up at the dripping pipes. I know someone is listening. I could hear the creaking pipes. Come out right now. There was no reply. She shrugged, and then hurried along the labyrinth until she reached the steps to the library, ran up them, and headed for the librarian's desk. As she approached it, his big grinning face appeared above it. I want, she began. The librarian rose slowly, put a finger to his lips, and placed a book on the table in front of her. The three-letter title, Silver on Black, was Orc. He looked her up and down, as if trying to reach a conclusion, then opened the book and turned the pages with exquisite care, given the thickness of those fingers, until he found the page he had been looking for. He held it up in front of her. There had been no time for breakfast today, but it's still possible to throw up when there's nothing left to throw. And if you needed to vomit, the woodcut held up beneath the librarian's hands would be a sure-fire medicine. He put the book down on the desktop, reached down again, and produced a barely used handkerchief and, after some rummaging around, a glass of water. I don't have to believe that, said Glenda. It's a drawing. It's not real. The librarian's thumb went up, and he nodded. 
He put the book under one arm and grabbed her with another and led her with surprising speed out of the door into the great maze of halls and corridors of the university. Their breathless journey finished in front of a door on which was painted Department of Post-Mortem Communications. The paint, however, had peeled somewhat, and under the bright new title could just be made out the letters N-E-C-R and what could possibly be one half of a skull. The door opened. Any door pushed by the librarian would assuredly open. Glenda heard the clink of the catch falling onto the floor inside. In the middle of the floor that was revealed stood a hideous figure. Its horrifying countenance had less than the effect it might have done, because from it dangled a quite readable label that said, Boffo Novelty and Joke Emporium, Improved Necromancer's Mask, Sale Price, Three Ankh-Morpork Dollars. This was removed to reveal the more salubrious countenance of Dr. Hicks. There really is no need to, he said, and then spotted the librarian. Oh, can I help you? The librarian held up the book and Dr. Hicks groaned. That again, he said. All right, what do you want? We've got an orc down in the cellars, said Glenda. Yes, I know, said Dr. Hicks. The librarian had a big face, but it nevertheless was not large enough to accommodate all of the surprise he wished to show. The head of the Department of Post-Mortem Communications shrugged and sighed. Look, he said, as if weary of having to explain so often and sighed again, I am supposed to be the bad person, as defined by university statute, right? I'm supposed to listen at doors, supposed to dabble in the black arts. I've got the skull ring. I've got the staff with the silver skull on it. And a joke shop mask, said Glenda. Quite serviceable as a matter of fact, said Hicks haughtily. Rather more frightening than the original thing, and washable, which is always a consideration in this department. Anyway, the Arch-Chancellor was down here weeks ago, after the same stuff you are, I very much imagine. Were the orcs terrible creatures? said Glenda. I think I can probably show you, said Hicks. This gentleman has already shown me the picture in the book, said Glenda. Was it the one with the eyeballs? Glenda found the memory only too vivid. Yes. Oh, there's worse than that, said Hicks happily, and I suppose you want the proof. He half turned his head. Charlie! A skeleton walked out through black curtains at the far end of the room. It was holding a mug. There was something curiously depressing about the slogan on said mug which ran, Necromancers do it all night. Don't be scared, said Dr. Hicks. I'm not, Glenda said, terrified to her insteps. I've seen the insides of a slaughterhouse. It's part of the job, and anyway, he's polished. Thank you very much, the skeleton articulated. But necromancers do it all night. That's a bit pathetic, isn't it? I mean, don't you think it's trying a bit too hard? It was hard enough to get that one made, said Dr. Hicks. We're not the most popular department in the university. Charlie, the young lady wants to know about orcs. Again? said the skeleton, handing the mug to the doctor. It had a rather hoarse voice, but on the whole far less dreadful than it might have been. Apart from anything else, his bones were, well, apart from anything else, and floated in the air as if they were the only visible parts of an invisible body. The jaw moved as Charlie went on. Well, I think we've still got the memory in the sump, cause, you remember, we called it up for Ridcully. I haven't got round to wiping it yet. Memory of what? said Glenda. It's a kind of magic, said Hicks loftily. He continued, it would take too long to explain. Glenda didn't like this. Let's have it in a nutshell, then. Okay. We're now quite certain that what we call the passage of time is in fact the universe being destroyed and instantly rebuilt in the smallest instant of eventuality that is possible to have. 
While the process is instant at every point, nevertheless to renew the whole universe takes approximately five days, we believe. Interestingly enough, can I have it in a smaller nut? So you don't want to hear about Houseman's theory of the universal memory? Possibly the size of a walnut, said Glenda. Very well, then. Can you imagine this? Current thinking is that the old universe is not destroyed in the instant the new universe is created, a process which, incidentally, has been happening an untold billion number of times since I have been talking. Yes, I can believe that. Can we try for a pistachio? said Glenda. Copies of the universe are kept. We don't know how, we don't know where, and it beats the hell out of me trying to imagine how it all works. But we're finding that it is sometimes possible to uh, read this memory in certain circumstances. How am I doing in terms of nut dimensions? You've got some kind of magic mirror, said Glenda flatly. That's it, if you want the size of a pine nut, said Hicks. Pine nuts are actually seeds, said Glenda smugly. So what you're saying is that everything that happens stays happened somewhere, and you can look at it if you have the knowing. That is a, a magnificent distillation of the situation, said Hicks, which is incredibly helpful, while at the same time inaccurate in every possible way. But, as you put it, we use a, and here he gave a little shudder, magic mirror, as you put it. We recently looked at the Battle of Orc Deep for the Arch-Chancellor. That was the last known battle in which the race known as Orcs were deployed. Deployed, said Glenda. Used, said Hicks. Used? And you can find something like that in the total history of everything there's ever been? <clears throat> it helps to have an anchor, said Hicks, something that was present. And all I am going to tell you, young lady, is that there was a piece of a skull found on that battlefield. And since it was a skull, that firmly puts it into the responsibility of my department. He turned to the librarian. It's okay to show her, isn't it? he said. The librarian shook his head. Good. That means I can do it, then, under university statute. A certain amount of surreptitious disobedience is demanded of me. We have it set up on an omniscope. Since my colleague is so certain that I should not be doing this, he will not mind if I do. It's only a very brief fragment of time, but it did impress the Arch-Chancellor, if impress is the right word. I just want to get something clear, said Glenda. You can actually disobey the orders of someone like the Arch-Chancellor. Oh, yes, said Hicks. I am under instruction to do so. It is expected of me. But how can that possibly work, said Glenda? What happens when he gives you an instruction that he doesn't want you to disobey? It works by common sense and goodwill on all sides, said Hicks. If, for example, the Arch-Chancellor gives me a command that absolutely must not be disobeyed, he will add something like, Hicks, you little worm, by university statute, if you disobey this one, I'll smack your head. Though, in reality, a word to the wise, madam, is sufficient. It's all done on the basis of trust, really. I am trusted to be untrustworthy. I don't know what the Arch-Chancellor would do without me. Yeah, right, said Charlie, grinning. A few minutes later, Glenda was in another dark room, standing in front of a round, dark mirror, at least as high as she was. "'Is this going to be like the moving pictures?' she said sarcastically. "'An amusing comparison,' said Hicks, "'except for, one, there is no popcorn, and, two, you would not want to eat it if there was. "'What might be called the camera in this case was the last thing one of the human fighters saw. "'Is this the person whose skull you've got?' "'Well done. I see you have been following things,' said Hicks. There was a moment of silence. "'This is going to be scary, isn't it?' 
"'Yes,' said Hicks. "'Nightmares? Very probably. "'Even I think it's extremely disconcerting. "'Are you ready, Charlie?' "'Ready,' said Charlie from somewhere in the darkness. "'Are you sure, miss?' Glenda wasn't sure, but anything would be better than facing Hicksy's know-it-all smile. "'Yes,' she said, keeping her voice firm. "'The fragment we're able to show lasts less than three seconds, "'but I doubt whether you will want to see it again. "'Are we ready? Thank you, Charlie.' Glenda's chair went backwards very quickly, and Hicks, who had been hovering, caught her. "'The only known representation of an orc in battle,' said Hicks, standing her upright. "'Well done, by the way. Even the Arch-Chancellor swore out loud.' Glenda blinked, trying to slice slightly less than three seconds out of her memory. "'And that's true, is it?' But it had to be true. There was something about the way the image was sticking to the back of her brain that declared the truth of it. "'I want to see it again.' "'You ought,' said Hicks. "'There's more to it,' said Glenda. "'It's only a part of a picture.' "'It took us hours to work that out,' said Hicks severely. "'How did you spot it the very first go?' "'Because I knew it had to be there,' said Glenda. "'She's got you there, boss,' said Charlie. "'All right. Show it again, and this time magnify the right-hand corner. "'It's very blurry,' he said to Glenda. "'Can you stop it?' said Glenda. "'Oh, yes. Charlie has worked that one out. "'Then you know the bit I mean. Oh, yes.' "'Then show me it again.' Charlie disappeared behind his curtain. There were a few flashes of light, and then— "'There!' she pointed at the frozen image. "'That's men on horseback, isn't it? And they've got whips. I know it's blurdy, but you can tell that they've got whips.' "'Well, yes, of course,' said Hicks. "'It's quite hard to get anything to run into a hail of arrows, unless you give it some encouragement. They were weapons, living creatures as weapons, and they don't look so different from humans. A lot of— "'Really interesting stuff happened under the evil emperor,' said Hicks conversationally. "'Evil stuff,' said Glenda. "'Yes,' said Hicks. "'That was rather the point. "'Evil emperor, evil empire. "'It did what it said on the Iron Maiden. "'And what happened to them?' "'Well, officially they're all dead,' said Hicks. "'But there have been rumours. "'And men drove them into battle,' said Glenda. "'If you want to put it like that, I suppose so,' said Hicks. "'But I am not certain that changes anything.' "'I think it changes everything,' said Glenda. "'It does if all that people talk about are the monsters and not the whips. "'Things that look very much like people. "'Well, a kind of people. "'What can you make from people if you really try?' "'It's an interesting theory,' said Hicks. "'But I don't think you can prove it. "'When kings fight other kings and win, "'they chop off the other king's head, don't they?' said Glenda. "'Sometimes,' said Hicks. I mean, you can't blame a weapon for how it's used. What's that they say? People can't help how they were made. I think the orcs were made. Glenda glanced at the librarian, who looked at the ceiling. You work as a cook, don't you? Would you like to work for my department? Everyone knows women can't be wizards, said Glenda. Ah, yes, but necro... Post-mortem communications is different, said Hicks proudly, and added, We could do with some sensible people here, heavens no and the feminine touch would be very welcome. And don't think I would require you to just come and do the dusting. We treasure our dust in this place, and your cookery skills will be invaluable. After all, basic butchery is all part of the job, and I do believe that Boffo's shop has a rather good female necromancer's costume in their sale. Isn't that right, Charlie? Ten dollars, including lace-up bodice. A bargain in anybody's money, said Charlie from behind his curtain. Very slinky. There had been no reply because Glenda's mouth had stuck in the act of opening, but she finally managed a polite but firm no.